and welcome to the Arts Equator Theatre Podcast. We are having a very special edition today. We're actually at Asia Topa in Melbourne. I'm Nabila Said, and I'm with Carolyn Wee. Hello everyone! So me and Carolyn, we have spent about five days in Melbourne and we've watched quite a few shows uh, and we'll be talking about some of them today. Essentially, Asia Topa is a, 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 a festival that happens once in every three years um, in Melbourne. And for us at Arts Equator, we've been watching quite a few of the Asian kind of works as well as some other shows as well. So firstly, we wanted to talk about um, Black Ties, which is a kind of like an Australian-New Zealand partnership between two theatre companies. One is Ilbi Jury Theatre Company and one is Terihia Theatre Company. Uh, and I'm very sorry if I mispronounce any of those. Um, um, yeah, but essentially it's actually a rom-com between uh, a Maori woman uh, called Hera and an Aboriginal man from Australia called Kane who are in love and want to get married. But as a lot of these rom-coms do, their families uh, basically object to this marriage on the grounds of them kind of like not being from the same kind of like tribe background. or family or background. And so drama and zoo. And this is actually a play that takes a form of two parts. So in the first part of the play, it's two families meeting the other half of the couple for the first time and you see tensions that, that might crop up. And then in the second part of the play, after the interval, it actually switches to become a kind of like a wedding scene where the audience are actually wedding guests. Alright, so um, Caroline, can you start off with telling us how you felt about Black Ties? Well, first of all, what I appreciated most about Black Ties was the fact that it gave us a good introduction to how the what the relationships between the migrants and the indigenous people are. Mm. That's one, because every, yes. every performance starts with an acknowledgement to... Uh, the, the the land that they're on, yeah. uh, the whether it's the it depends on which community this yeah. particular piece of land belongs to, and there's an acknowledgement to that. And this is every performance in Asia Topa. Every right? single performance, correct? Yeah. So that was that's a very refreshing uh, thing for me yeah. uh, for for us because for us it's in Singaporeans in in Singapore is like yeah. no, <laughs> who do we thank sponsors yeah. right? <laughs> So, <laughs> so uh, along those lines, um, I was really uh, thankful for being given new lo knowledge through Black Ties. Mm. Primarily that I didn't know there was so much animosity between the Maoris in New Zealand mm. and the Aboriginals in Australia. Yeah. And this came through in several points throughout the play, yeah. uh, through the, the shouting and very emotional conversations that they were having. Uh, but yeah, th there were... There were very obvious allusions to this tension yeah. throughout the place. For example, Cain was meeting with um, Hera's mum, uh, and and you know the scene in New Zealand was was very tense because yeah. Hera was asking all sorts of questions. Uh, Hera's mother was asking all sorts of questions like, "Is he Maori, for yeah. example?" And then you thought, "Oh, is 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 that mm. going to be a problem?" Yeah, and you might think that it sounds like a serious drama, but it's actually a rom com, right? It's kind yes. of built as a a rom com, but f with First Nations characters and families. So that was interesting for us. Like, there's a lot of these serious issues that Caroline was talking about. There's also things about abandonment uh, of fathers leaving that seems to be a, a big issue in the community a sense of like injustice um, that that happens to these communities as well but there were so many moments of like comedy and levity and, and shtick and just sh pure shtick <laughs> there was quite a lot of shtick you're right yeah. Um, uh, pr yeah uh primarily in the with the musicians there were three musicians who would come on and off the stage uh 
and I suppose they were A, providing um, a musical accompaniment to what was going on, but they were also providing perhaps some comic relief. And I think sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work for me, especially not if the shtick came in the midst of something that was particularly dramatic and yeah. if there was a particularly emotional discussion going on, then, you know, you you, you, you don't want that unnecessary levity. Yeah, and we kind of talked about one particular scene where there's like a Maori welcome ceremony and before the ceremony was going to happen, I think um, uh, the two boys, the, the Australian Aboriginal boys, they were scared of the ceremony. They were like, what's going to happen? And you think it's going to be a serious kind of like warrior-esque welcome and then it becomes it's played as like a physical gag almost right with and a broken broomstick with a broken broomstick and like a slipper <laughs> instead of like weapons basically um, and and you know it, it drew some laughs but then I think what happened after that was that the women came out and instead of singing maybe a more traditional, traditional Maori tune song they sang it's raining men yes and they sang it really well yes and it was like I love the way it was like contemporary and traditional at the same time um, so that was like very very enjoyable but I think one thing to talk about is the fact that this show took 150 minutes to tell this story and after a while there were moments that you felt was a bit draggy a bit draggy there was a bit of padding that didn't need to be there some exchanges felt like they were in a totally different play almost mm-hmm. um because they were played so broadly or almost like a slapstick. Precisely. But we, we were also talking about the fact that given the length of the show, um, you you as the audience member, you almost feel invested in yeah. it. It's like, um, and I don't know whether this was the intention of the, the, the playwrights, but it was like really being at somebody's wedding. You know, some random wedding where you could be expected to spend about two and a half, three hours. And a lot of it uh, is sitting there going, why are we here? Yeah, I kind of feel that because you spend so much time with these characters and I felt like the actors played them really well. Mm. Uh, you do believe some of the chemistry between the characters. You can forgive sometimes some of the mm. slack in the storytelling. But overall, I felt that it was a very important story to tell this kind of like a First Nations rom-com. I'm very sure it's it's one of the rare performances. Australia-New Zealand partnership as well. Moving on to Huruhara. Okay, mm. so how do I start with Huruhara? What Huruhara means is that in Bahasa Indonesia or Bahasa Melayu, it means riot or chaos, right? And it <laughs> it was what it, it was, and to which I would add, so is it, is it meant to be organised or disorganised? Mm, yeah, so when you go to Huruhara, which, where they do it is in this uh, Abbotsford convent. It's a disused convent, disused which convent, is now an art space. A cool art space. So mm. when you first go into this indoor space, it's like an exhibition with many different components. There was like installation art, there was a dive bar in it, there's street art, um, there's artists still making things when we were there, people selling t-shirts and all. It was like everything that you can think about Mm -hmm. Um, but essentially uh, you don't really know what's what sometimes like you're like is that part of the artwork are they done with this are they not you know there's a sense of like unfinishedness that you feel that if you come tomorrow it would change you know well, um, in, in fact, you can pretty much expect that yeah. because they do say that the installation is just going to take on um, new dimensions as the time passes. Yeah, because it's like a week-long kind of thing. Yeah. So that was kind of like indoors. And then outdoors, there are basically like different performances every night. And we caught two, basically. One was a kind of like a performance art that was done by a solo performer, performing with like a batik cloth and mm-hmm. like wrapping it and, you know, unfolding it, getting people to play and like touch it and play with it um, and for that one I think it kind of eluded us a little bit 
Yes, and they were meant to, uh, that performance was by uh, Nila Chu, who's an anonymous artist from Singapore, yeah. and it's meant to be a funerary rite. Mm. And obviously, it, it was programmed to take place every night of Huruhara. Obviously, we haven't had the benefit of seeing any other of Nila Chu's yes. performances, so we don't know how that funerary rite has evolved, yeah. if at all. Yeah. Uh, but what we saw, yes, it did escape us as to... Um, what is this about? Yeah. What was the point? Um, I know performance art can be a little bit difficult to understand sometimes, but yeah. as Wayang Pola that proved to us after. immediately after that, mm. uh, that there can actually be a point yeah. and there can be context. Yeah. So Wayang Pola is actually, um, they're, they're apparently uh, interactive mural artists from Jogja, but what we saw was a kind of a live DJ set and there was also a dancer, performer who was kind of like, bound in fragile tape, right? And then moving in a very animalistic, non-human type of way. Um, and you don't actually see the DJs because they're covered by their mural art and they're making all these sounds. And actually, because I was watching it from afar, so I didn't know that they were making sounds live. I thought they were, you know, sometimes DJ just, DJs just spin music. Yeah. But this one is like very live and very uh, almost ritualistic kind of like sounds that yes. they were making. There was a lot of things that you could get from it, I felt. And, and a lot of context that you could get from Wayang Pola, which I think for Nila Chu, we didn't really get that as much. So I think with Huruhara, it I get the sense that is this like amalgamation of different things that you know Nusantara artists, avant-garde artists um, can can do, but also a sense that it can get messy real fast. Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. within the messiness, you could get something very surprising and very beautiful as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that I think that promise of it, that's quite something that I think Huruhara really does really well. Yeah, if you, it does require investment from the audience though, because if you do want to see how the, the, the entire installation evolves, you would have to go more than once. Yeah. Carolyn, tell us about Chinese square dancers. Okay, so hashtag, is it because I'm Chinese? But I will oblige. Um, so Chinese square dancers, basically a bunch of people in a square formation doing movements with their arms and their legs and, and square synchronized movements and square dancing, mass dancing as many Singaporeans would mm. know. So this is so important for so many reasons because one, the participants were all roughly in their 60s. Some Up. even looked like they were in their 70s. Yeah. But they were spry, mm. they were slim. Nobody looked like they were about to keel over from a heart attack. Maybe me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. Yeah. We tried it out yeah. as well. And the movements are not simple. Yeah. I mean, they are, they are simple. simple and they're low intensity, but they require coordination. Yeah. And the repetitive nature of the movements actually do start to put some stress yeah. on the muscles. Like you, you start to feel um, a, a dull ache in your, your upper arm yeah. or you feel um, some kind of a strain on your forearm because you are clenching a fist. Yes. But these are such essential bodily movements yeah. that you know they are only doing your body a whole world of good mm -hmm. by actually moving them. Then the other thing is because it requires coordination and um, if, if it's accessible to older people, it means, I'm sure, it keeps dementia at bay. Yeah. It must do because it just keeps your mind working. It's like Sudoku, right? Yeah, yeah. Or doing a crossword. Um, mm. And then, of course, there is that community aspect yeah. that is just so important because these ladies, most of them were ladies, yeah. um, as is the case with most communal uh, exercise <laughs> programs. 
most of them were ethnically Chinese and migrants to Australia. Yeah. It, it's so important that as a migrant in a foreign country, you do need that sense of community. You do need a support network. And I'm pretty sure that if any of them had any issues or needed some help, um, other members of the community would jump in to, yeah. to assist. I think I really felt that sense of solidarity. So I tried to like stay for as long as I could mm. doing the exercises, right? And after a while, you, you see passers-by kind of like look at you or take photos or sometimes they are laughing or, you know, trying to like make fun of the, the some of the movements. And it made me really think about what it's like to be this women, mm. to be in this community. And, and there's a reason why, in a sense, they cling to this regular activity with each other. Yeah. And I like that it's part of Asia Topa because you don't think about Chinese square dancing as something in a that you find a contemporary kind of like performance festival, right? But the fact that it is, I felt like it's very welcoming. Yeah. It's like a very welcoming thing. Like there is space for all of us in, in Australia, in the world. Mm. I really got that sense being part of the group. To me, Chinese square dancing is the epitome of a community arts event. Mm. And you know, arts policy makers the world over are falling over themselves trying to in, uh, incorporate the idea of community arts into their policies, into their events, into their yeah. programming because they know exactly how important it is. Yeah. And uh, this this is the, a very, very good example of that in action. Mm. Next, we actually saw, well, I didn't see it. I saw it in Singapore, actually, the seen and unseen by Camila Andini. How was that? I really enjoyed this mm. because, first of all, I enjoy dance and I especially enjoy dance that is performed well. By that, I mean dance that requires and is executed with a high level of technical skill. Now, of course, there have to be the accompaniments like uh, a good set, yeah. lighting design, a rich soundtrack in order to flesh out all of the spectacle. Mm. And I believe the scene and unseen really had all of these. The set was minimalistic, but it, it really did the job. It was just there was a nest of hair that was made by Eugene Tay. And then the soundscape was essentially naturalistic sounds. Birds chirping, dogs barking, rivers flowing. And of course, there's the, there was actual live singing. It just added to the magical beauty of Bali that one has already come to as expect, yeah. whether from watching movies or having been there themselves. Yeah. Right? But as far as the dancers were concerned, they performed their parts with a great deal of soul, particularly the child performance from Communitas Bumi Badra, which is an arts academy of sorts where artists are trained from a very young age right. in vocalization, dance, theater, and percussion. Mm. The children displayed a, a whole series of vocalizations from howling to hissing to shrieking. And these vocalizations are so primal, yeah. so, so primal that I, I wonder if the, they actually helped the performers to dig into their beings for direction and mm. the sounds, the vocalizations that the, the children were making were not just children playing at yeah. making the animals, yes, noises. Yeah. Precisely. It's not just, yeah. oh, let's do a, a cat's mew or something. Yeah. This is something really deep, deep, deep inside. Yeah. So there's, there's an example of uh, Tantri, who is what the, one of the protagonists. So essentially, the story is about Tantri and Tantra, who are twins. Mm. Um, but Tantra falls seriously ill, and Tantri has to deal with his illness and the knowledge that he, she is losing him very, very slowly, but surely. Mm. Um, there is a scene where she, I don't even know what to call it, whether it's a shriek or a yawp or, or, or 
something else, but it just came from her belly somewhere. And yeah, it's so far beyond her, f- her 14 years. She's only yeah. 14 years old. Yeah. Um, the the dancer's name is Nikadek Talikase, and she played Tantri in the movie as well and actually won an award for it. Wow. Something that I kind of remember was actually like from the nest of like what you said, the, the set design, there was actually like an IV drip that falls and it's alluding to the, the boy's kind of illness as well. And I remember when I watched it last year, I was <laughs> kind of annoyed by it because it was so jarring from the more organic nature of the set and the dancing and, you know, just just very natural kind of world. And then to see this one very jarring thing that comes like from a, a clinical space, I was annoyed by that at the time. And then there was another thing where I think there was an egg that dropped, right, that broke. And then a a towel comes on stage and like to wipe it away. And I was like, oh, you know. (laughs) And, um, but after thinking about it a bit more, it kind of makes sense Mm. in the world of the play. Because you were mentioning how, oh, everything is beautiful and all, right? And I feel like you can't just have beautiful things all the time. Like you get, you can get tired of it quite fast. But because there was this sharp contrast, it was, it's like, yes, like this is about real world kind of issues, real world problems. And, and now I can kind of understand the directorial choice of having those things on right. stage. And, and the, the whole premise of the story is dualism. Yeah. So I think the uh, IV drip was extremely important to remind the audience that this wasn't just some idyllic romanticized exactly. view of Bali. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's it's contemporary yeah and then the wiping up of the egg well several reasons i i Mm -hmm. i I look at it from a very practical standpoint it's like somebody could have slipped on the egg yeah (laughs) (laughs) so so it's like let's get it out of the way first yeah yeah that's true actor safety fair enough fair enough (laughs) (laughs) so to uh to move on to a kind of happier note uh torch the place Mm. is a kind of a a drama comedy about a chinese australian family who uh they live in queensland now and uh, there's these three children who come and essentially are staging an intervention for their mom, Diana, who has a very, very serious hoarding problem, right? Um, and, and the hoarding problem is basically kind of like a manifestation of this migrant mother's kind of like hopes and dreams that may not have been realised and her sense of like the fact that she's cut off from her roots almost. And her children who are, you know, very English-speaking, very articulate Australian uh, kids She's alienated from them, basically, mm. right? Yes. Um, but it is a sitcom because Benjamin Law is a you know he's known as a TV writer. He writes comedies, I think, mainly. Um, and and so it was this interesting mix of like this very kind of like serious issues, but played within the context of a comedy, and it was really really funny. Um, we were talking about there's a Mulan scene, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is that a stereotype, Carolyn? <laughs> I, my my gut reaction was to, to say, oh God, please spare me the stereotype. But when I think about it, the the, the Chinese diaspora actually does look to appreciate yeah. Mulan, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that was a scene where basically like they go, it's almost like a musical kind of scene. Yes. It breaks the realism of, of the story, which was very enjoyable. And, and I think the audience was like howling in their seats. Um, and I think another thing was that uh, you could actually hear Cantonese language in this play mm-hmm. uh, and they were they were delivered without subtitles so you you know you might not know what the mum is saying because it's the mum who can speak Cantonese mm-hmm. the children most of them don't speak Cantonese and might not understand her similar to the audience as well 
Um, and Carolyn, because you understand Cantonese, right? I do. I, I'm not a Cantonese speaker, but I, I am familiar with how Cantonese should be spoken. And the minute Diana Lin, who, by the way, was also in the farewell, mm. and she was bloody good at the farewell, <laughs> she isn't a Cantonese speaker. And the minute she started speaking Cantonese, I knew, because I could hear that her lilt wasn't at all Cantonese. Mm. Um, and in the Q&A session after the the, the performance, she did admit to this yeah. and she said that her language is actually Mandarin, Mandarin and she had discussed this with Benjamin Law and she had even suggested changing the language to Mandarin mm. from Cantonese to make it a little bit more authentic. Mm. Uh, eventually, the decision was to keep the Cantonese yeah. and I guess may maybe Benjamin Law just wanted to be uh, true to what had already been written. Yeah, um, and but I think his own experience as well, possibly. Yes, yeah. I think so, yeah. I think so. But um, the end result, well, as, as far as I was concerned, was that the Cantonese was less than authentic. Yeah, uh. yeah. Mm. So I think, I think the question there is like, perhaps like, who is it written for? Like maybe if it's a, for an audience who doesn't understand Cantonese, it would not be able to pick up that it wasn't as authentic as it could be. And I'm from that group because I didn't, I don't understand Cantonese. So to me, it was like, wow, it sounds so beautiful, you know. To me, that's a question to ask, lah. Mm. So moving on to metal, what is that about, Caroline? Wow, metal. Okay, what is it about, indeed? It's described as a collaboration between uh, Lucy Garin Inc., which is an Australian contemporary dance company, and a heavy metal choir <laughs> called Ensemble Tikoro are from Bandung in Indonesia. If, if you were given just that information, you would uh, be forgiven for thinking mm -hmm. that this performance entailed a bunch of heavy metal rockers who would be you know, in one corner of the stage playing their instruments, mm. shouting into the microphones. And then on the other side of the stage, you would have a bunch of dancers dancing to their music. Mm -hmm. Except that that's not what happened at all. And essentially what was the performance was, yes, the heavy metal choir in their requisite black t-shirt, <laughs> jeans and long hair covering the face without instruments other than their voices. The only instrumentation they had was... Wait, can I do it? ...was vocal instrument. Please, Nabila, <laughs> try. Essentially, it was kind of like... I will spare you, but that's basically it. Yes, right? that was it. That was just an hour's worth of that sort of yeah. throat singing. But so very, very technical throat singing as very well. Very technical yeah. throat singing, of course. And then the dancers dancing to that throat singing, to the changes in tempo mm. of that throat singing. And the collaborative aspect was where the, the dancers and the singers all moved around the stage at various times and almost like blended they were blended correct or you couldn't sometimes you couldn't tell who was the dancer who was the performer i mean obviously you can because <laughs> most of the dancers were women um, and for the heavy metal choir only one was a woman the rest were, were men with long hair um, but even with the long hair flying all about sometimes it's like wow like who is who and i think that was quite cool because essentially these are two worlds that come together for a performance mm -hmm. and i like that in the end it became one unified world almost yes. um, and I'm not sure whether I imagined it but at some point I felt the throat singing actually evolved into like I could actually hear like gamelan sounds that were still all coming from humans essentially and I heard words even 
I heard words. Yeah. I'm not sure if I heard the gamelan <laughs> sounds, and I I don't know whether there there was any soundtrack piped in I as well. Was, I think right? there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, 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 accompaniment. There was piped in accompaniment. Yeah. So that might not have been from the the choir. But Who knows? They were coming up with like such interesting sounds. Correct. Actually, like yeah. animalistic as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. it sounded like construction and things like that. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. There was there was a very strong timber in the, in their throat singing, and on on that point about the the collaborativeness of yeah. uh, the performance like, i think this was a good example of a true multidisciplinary performance because a lot of the time when you say multidisciplinary people think oh okay let's just stick a yeah. poet on stage and then have somebody next to him in a, with a guitar and then that's multidisciplinary it's like, mm-hmm. uh, no where, where's yeah. the result yeah. of that collaboration so i think this one really blended the yeah. two quite well yeah. I do still feel that it's a little bit raw around the edges. Like, I feel like it could... Oh my it, gosh, I how is heavy metal not raw? <laughs> it's Everything about it is so raw. Yeah, so maybe some rawness is to be expected. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, like... Basically, I'm, I'm interested to see, like, what happens after this. Because this is, like, a 60-minute performance. Mm-hmm. Like, can they evolve it such that it builds to a, a bigger kind of thing than it was? Because this is the p- world premiere of mm-hmm. the piece. So that'll be very exciting to see. And I think, like, just having the heavy metal quiet in this festival I thought it was so interesting to have them I yes. think a lot of people were there because of the curiosity as well yes I mean because you asked the question what the hell is a heavy metal choir <laughs> and that's partially answered yes it is yeah, so with that, we've come to the end of this quite long episode. We are actually watching even more shows. Uh, so there'll be another episode that's coming out you know, pr- in a few days. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for Asia Topa for having us in Melbourne as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.